0: Now, once again, welcome to St. John, I'm Dion, uh, welcome to those of you joining us online too. Uh, we are in week five of this series, Marked, and, um, and this week again, you know, five weeks into a series, it, it can start to feel like, all right, five weeks, I'm ready to move on to something else, at least that's how I feel sometimes. Um, but I was reminded again this week, several times over, why this series is so important. Because have you noticed that that in our country today, in our world today really, uh, anyone can call themselves a Christian no matter who they are they, they can call themselves a Christian and, and, and do you notice that technically you cannot argue with them on that designation right have, have you noticed this I mean theologically if someone says Jesus is Lord then they can, they can rightfully call themselves a Christian and you technically cannot argue with them about that but sometimes it just doesn't sit right does it I mean, when someone calls themselves a Christian, when they apply that label to themselves, and, and there's nothing else that evidences it except that label. Do you know what I mean? Those moments where, where someone will say something about being a Christian, but, but, then, but then everything else they, they say or do seems to say the opposite. That just doesn't sit right, even though technically you can't say anything against it. And uh, this week, you know, and just cut to the chase, we're in this big election year. And it just surprises me, and maybe it doesn't surprise me at all, but um, it it bothers me, I guess. It doesn't sit right with me that uh, here in this election year, you have candidates who in one breath can quote Bible verses, and then in the next breath, they can totally berate people and say the most ugly, hateful things, just two breaths apart. It just doesn't sit right with me. Now, I'm not saying that you have to vote for a Christian candidate. I would never say that. In fact, I don't think you have to. You should vote for the best person for the job. But, but here's my deal. If you're going to make the claim, if you're going to apply the label to yourself, then, then it seems like there should be more than just a label. It should have to be more than just a claim, not just for politicians, but really for all of us. See, see in our culture, we have this word, in our dictionary, we have this word hypocrite. And this word, I think it's a word we all know, it, it implies someone who is acting or pretending. They're wearing a mask. They're pretending to be someone that they're not. They're play acting. They're, you know, they're, they're um, insincere. They're, they're inauthentic. Now my question is though, even though we know this word and we'd apply it to people freely, my question is, how do you really know if someone's being a hypocrite? Or if it's just a matter of human weakness? If it's a matter of struggle, if it's a matter of character flaws that we all have, a matter of sin struggles that we all have that, that they're fighting with. I mean, how do you know if someone's just struggling it out with their sinful nature? Or how do you know the difference if, if someone's either in struggle or if they're a hypocrite? I like, mean, how, how do you know? There's no way to tell, is there? And see, again, it, it, it may not be provable that someone is a hypocrite, but, but they're just moments where, where people's attitude, their actions, and their label, they don't mesh, and it doesn't sit right. And see, that's where I think Peter was so wise. Peter was one of the closest followers of Jesus. Peter was one of the leaders in the early church. And uh, Peter wrote a letter to Christians. And uh, we've been studying this letter a little bit here in the series. It's kind of our theme verse for the series. Uh, just one part of it, though. 2 Peter chapter 1. We've been studying these words. And, uh, and Peter seemed to either predict the conundrum that we would find ourselves in today or it was the same problem living back in his day where it just didn't sit right that people could call themselves a Christian and yet live another way. And so instead of saying, no, 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 you're not a Christian, you're a hypocrite, instead of arguing that point, Peter said something else. He he spoke to people who want to be sincere and he said this, he says, you know, if you want to be sincere, then do this. Make every effort to add to your faith, right? Because faith is all that's required in order for you to say, I'm a Christian, but make every effort to add to your faith if you're sincere about this. Goodness and a goodness knowledge. And the knowledge self-control and a self-control perseverance and a perseverance godliness. And the godliness we're gonna talk about these next week mutual affection and a mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It will keep people from going, yeah, I know that's what you say about yourself, but I'm not seeing it. It will keep people from calling you a hypocrite. But, but then he goes on and he says these words. I don't know if we've studied these yet. He says, but whoever does not have these things, anyone who clings to the label alone, anyone who clings to the creed alone and doesn't have the rest of these things, here's what he says. He says it, not me. So you want to get mad today? Take it out with Peter, Okay whoever does not have these things is nearsighted and blind forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. See, Peter again, he says, you know what, if if you're sincere, strive for more than a label, strive for more than a creed, strive for these marks, these marks that we've been talking about in this series, seven of them that, that we're gonna talk about before it's all said and done, and add to your faith these other marks because if you do, that will make all the difference as you live out your life in the world. See, in week five of the series, I believe this series is so important for us, and and I hope you're taking it seriously. I hope you're seeking God in all of this. I hope you're trying to embody these marks because I believe they make all the difference in our faith, in our life, in our witness, in the world. And so today we're going to look at the fifth mark, the fifth mark in our series, Um, a mark that I think is the hardest one, the most difficult one, not only to live out, but to get our minds around. The mark, of course, is the mark of godliness, the fifth thing in his list, godliness, now, um, we might use this word, maybe you don't, but a lot of people do. Someone's godly, someone isn't godly, it's ungodly, it's godly, you know, whatever. We, we might use this word, but, but, but today I want to ask you, what does this word really mean? What does it mean to be godly? I mean, when I, when I hear that, I think, okay, does that mean to be godlike? I mean, to be godly, that means evidencing the character traits of God? That's a pretty tall order. Is that what it means? Does it mean to be upright or righteous or perfect? Does it mean to be pious or well behaved? What does it mean truly to be godly? See the other lists or the other words in Peter's list. I mean, we know those words: perseverance, self control, knowledge. Right? Goodness. Okay. But what does it mean to be godly really? See, I've been scratching my head on this one, and uh, and just to let you know, I have a deeper motive for trying to figure this out. Um, some of you know this, most of you probably don't, that in our church's constitution, there is a list of four things. And, and this list of four things are the four ways, the four reasons that I can be dismissed, I can be fired as your pastor. See, someone decided a long time ago that it probably wasn't a good idea to let the, the church fire their pastor for any reason, because pastors occasionally do things that make people mad, right? Um, and so they decided that a long time ago, it's not, it's not okay for people just to fire their pastor for any reason. You know, you can't fire him because he's relentless in his assaults against your beloved red carpet, right? You, you cannot fire me for that. You can disagree with me, you can't fire me for that. You can't fire me for that. But, but they said, but there are some things, there have to be some ways that you can fire a pastor who's unfaithful and they highlighted these four things and they're actually written about in our constitution. Now, I'm hesitant to share these with you today just in case some of you have been like, I've been waiting for this moment. Um, I mean, here it is. I'm just going to go with it. It's out in our constitution. You'd find it eventually. So um, the first thing, persistent adherence to false doctrine. To, to not just make a mistake in something I say, but to persistently teach false doctrine. An ungodly or scandalous life. I'll come back to that in a minute. Willful neglect of official duty. So I, I'm just not doing my job. I refuse to. Or an inability to do my job. So those are the four reasons that you can get rid of me. Now you know. Um, but, but specifically, I want to look at this word right here. This word scares me a little bit. Because I'm just going to be honest with you. I'll, I'll be straight up. And I was, in fact, when I interviewed for, for this job, when I went through the whole process, I, I would never say that my behavior is always godly. Uh, just watch me drive in heavy traffic sometime. All doubt will be removed instantly. But more than more than road rage, and by the way, I'm from Michigan. We claim road rage is a birthright. I mean, it's just—it's not even a character flaw. It's just who we are. But but more than road rage, I mean, if if you put me under surveillance, if you watch me for 24 hours, uh, and you know you you watch that and you played that back of just, just me living my life, I, I guarantee something. I guarantee that there would be things that all of you would would go like, wait a minute. I, I don't, I don't like that in my pastor. I, I don't feel good about that, right? There would be things that would bother you. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, if we put you under 24-hour surveillance and your family, your friends, just random people, strangers watch that, they would feel the same, right? They would see things about your behavior. they go, hold on. So when it comes to godliness or ungodliness, how do we measure this Really? I mean, what's the criteria for this? How do we figure out whether someone's being godly or ungodly? Is is it just like you know any and all things go? So so anything, any of your not so bright and shining moments, those are criteria you know for me to get fired, for for your spouse to go, hey, I'm done with you. I, I wasn't expecting that. That's too far. Is is any and any any and everything that you do that is not godly is is that is that you know criteria for your parents to be able to send you away to reform school? Is that enough for your church family to move away from you and to you know, practice church discipline or excommunication? How does this work? Or is it on some sort of sliding scale? Are you graded on a curve based on the people you hang out with? You know, or are you godly if you're just better than all your peers? Or, or is there some sort of jury where public opinion gets to decide what constitutes godliness and what doesn't. See, how do you really know what godliness is? I think this is very difficult to get your mind around, especially because we are a church. We we belong to a faith tradition that takes very seriously the reality of our sinful nature. We don't teach in this church that you can ever overcome your sinful nature in this life. You can war against it. You can mature, but you will never beat it. You will never perfect yourself. We don't believe that as long as you live life on this earth. You won't have that. So, so how do you talk about godliness when we also talk about the strong reality of a sinful nature that we all fight against? And how do you add godliness to your faith in the way that Peter instructs us to? See, after struggling with this and studying this for not just this week, but for a couple of weeks, I've come to some c- conclusions about what godliness, or the Greek word uh, that we translate godliness, and there's some argument even about whether this word Eusebia should be translated godliness. Um, it's, it's kind of a hard word to nail down, and yet as I've studied Peter's list and the things that he talks about and, and the other things that he's about to talk about, I'll say these things that, that I'm convinced that godliness is something that you can't detect simply by watching someone. Right? There may be people that you watch, and you watch their behavior, and you say, man, that looks like a godly man, that looks like a godly woman, and that could be the furthest thing from the truth. And on the flip side, there are people that you would look at, and you would never apply the word godly to them based on their behavior, based on their outward appearances, and yet the truth may be that they may be more godly than you are. See, I'm convinced that you can't detect it simply by watching someone. Second, that godliness is measured by something deeper, that, that, that there is a deeper measuring stick. There is a deeper set of criteria that God uses in this whole definition of Eusebia or godliness. Finally, I'd put it this way. That godliness, I'm convinced, is, is, de- is defined this way, at least in Peter's uh, letter. That it is a deep, passionate desire for God. An intense and authentic devotion to him. I'll say that again. It's a deep, passionate desire for God. It's an intense and authentic devotion to him. See, see this is godliness. It's, it's not the other stuff that we often get hung up on and we often point to. And to show you this in detail today, I, we're gonna look at a character in the Bible, a person in the Bible, who is probably one of the few examples in the Bible that universally, Christians and scholars and everyone else would say, yes, this is a godly person. You can't do that with many people in the Bible. There's a lot of argument. But there are a few people, in, and we're gonna look at the guy who I think more than anyone else, no one would argue against his godliness. But before we look at him, I want to talk to you about another guy. I want to talk to you about a guy by the name of Saul. Now, there are a couple guys named Saul, but Saul I want to talk to you about was was the first king of Israel, and he was made king because God chose him. God picked him to be the king, So, so God selected him you would think that'd be a pretty good HR director, right? I mean, God hiring someone. I mean, what a great hiring manager. And, uh, and for a while, Saul did a very, very good job. But then somewhere along the way, some, somehow, Saul lost it. He kept up his, his appearances, or he tried to. He tried to keep his behavior very kingly and very righteous acting. But, but somewhere along the way, he lost his heart for God. He lost a deep devotion for God. And so um, one day um, his armies are getting ready to go into battle Because that's what kings did back in those days They led their armies into battle Um, And so his armies are getting ready to go into battle And I'll spare you the whole story But but he makes a decision And his decision is He makes a decision to offer sacrifices um, Before they go into battle As a way to invite God's favor on them This is something that he shouldn't have done And more than just breaking a rule. He wasn't authorized to make these sacrifices. The truth of what Saul's doing here is is Saul is is trying to keep the appearances right. He's trying to encourage the men. He's trying to make it look like, hey, God is with us. He's trying to give them boldness as they go into battle. But but the reality is his sacrifices have nothing to do with honoring God. They all have to do with keeping his army energized and keeping himself, uh, you know, empowered and, and victorious as a king. And right after he offers these sacrifices that he should not be making, the prophet Samuel walks up. And Samuel is the guy who is in charge of making sacrifices. And he's the spokesperson for God. And here's what he says to Saul. He says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure The Lord has sought out a man, this is important, a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. See, what's the command here? Is the command you shouldn't make sacrifices, that's only the priest's job? No. See, the command, and God tells us what the command is. I highlighted it in yellow. The command is that Saul would love and honor God, that he'd be a man who would stay devoted to him, not just in his actions, but but more importantly, in his heart. And somewhere along the way, Saul had lost it. He had become ungodly. Now, I want to skip ahead a few chapters. That was 1 Samuel 13. I want to skip ahead a few chapters to the moment where God finally identifies the next king, the man who will be a man after his own heart, who will live a godly life. And that's our example today. So we're going to go to 1 Samuel 16. Uh, You can follow along here on the screen or also in your Bible. Let's take a look. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? So Samuel's not happy about Saul's uh, you know, Saul's mistakes and God's rejection of Saul. He's not happy about it at all. God says, but we need to move on now. Um, how long are you gonna mourn for him? Here's what I want you to do. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I've got this highlighted because it's gonna be important later on in the service in our marked moment. He says, I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, a nobody at the time, I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go to Bethlehem? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me if I go and try to anoint a new king. The Lord said, here's what you should do. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So it's going to be a half truth. Now someday I'll preach a message on the difference between the commandment that talks about bearing false witness and uh, being honest in truth, it, it's kind of different. I think we have a messed up idea about this. Um, so this is a half truth. He's going to make sacrifices, but that's not his real reason for coming. Uh, God says, and I want you also to invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are, a t- you are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, "Do you come in peace? Right? If if the prophet of God comes to your town, he's not bringing good news. This is not, you know, publisher sweeps uh, sweeps. Uh, what is it? Publishers clearinghouse sweepstakes, right? Like, you want no. If the prophet comes, it's usually you've done something wrong, and he's coming to speak judgment. So all of the elders of the town are freaked out that Samuel's there. Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, "Yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifices with me." Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, this must have been weird because Jesse's not an elder. His sons certainly aren't. So so why are they taking part in this royal priestly act of sacrificing for their town? They must have been confused about all of this. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab or Eliab, means my God is father or God is my father. Um, And he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, people look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at what does it say? The heart. I just have to pause here for a second because I think this is so insightful not just about what God looks for but it's also a powerful uh, word about what we look for that, that people look at appearance, right? That we judge people by the way they dress, by the way they talk, by their manners, by their education, by behavior, by looks. That's the criteria we use to judge people. Uh, that's not only the criteria that we use to judge people, that's the criteria we often use to judge ourselves, right? Right? So so am I godly or not? We look at all of the outward signs, but but God says, no, 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 that's not what I'm looking at. That's not what I'm impressed with. I look more deeply. I look at the heart. Now, I want to ask you this, okay? Just just put yourself here for a second. I want you to imagine that you're in Bethlehem right now, and um, there's this lineup of Jesse's sons, and you are put into that lineup. Just, you know, somehow you end up there. You're not one of Jesse's sons, but you're standing there in this lineup. And uh, as Samuel makes his way down the line, you know, he stops at Eliab first and, and he looks at him and he looks him in the eyes and he waits for God to speak and, and, and God speaks and, uh, and, and Samuel, you know, whispers in Samuel's ear and Samuel knows whether or not this is the guy. He, he gets insight that he wouldn't have otherwise and then he moves down the line. I want you to imagine that Samuel eventually comes to you and he stops right before you and he looks at you right in the eye and uh and, and, and he waits for God to speak. He waits to hear what God is going to whisper in his ear about you. What do you think God would say? Not about your appearance, not about your your you know credentials, whether or not you were confirmed or baptized, or not about your church attendance, not about any of that stuff. the number of Bible verses you know. What do you think God would say in Samuel's ear about your heart, about your devotion to him, about the level of desire that you have for him? What do you think God would say? Now, now sometimes, uh, you know, I, I get to come here on weekends when I'm not teaching and I get to come in and uh, do what you do on a weekend. You know, I, I get to have breakfast with my family and we get dressed and we come to church together and we try to make it on time and we're usually like, you know, 90 seconds late and, right, it happens to me too and, uh, and, and I come and I sit and I look around and often when I'm, when I'm on those weekends, I look around and I wonder, I wonder, I'm like, why, why are all these people here today? I mean, I know why I'm here but but why, I wonder why they're here. Or I look at our on going like growing online attendance numbers and it's just just booming and think about all the people who are tuning in right now on the live stream hi by the way um, and all the people who watch messages later on and, and I think what are, what are they tuning in for? It, it, is it out of some sort of family tradition that we do this? You know in the Garrett family we were raised to go to church and so we go to church every Sunday Is is that what this is? Is that why we come? Is that why we tune in? Or is it out of respect for some family member Because we know it matters to them And so out of respect for them we show up Is, is that what brings us here Is it, is it, is it out of um, some, some desire to grow as a moral person To become morally upright To do that for our kids To help them become moral people Our grandkids help them become moral people I'll tell you there's nothing wrong with those things But those aren't reasons that get God excited See, God doesn't look at, at all of those things and he's not impressed by those things. God is looking deeper. He's looking for men and women who will be men and women after his own heart. People who come here because they desire to be with him. They desire to hear from him. They desire to spend time with him. They want to honor him. They're devoted to him. That's what gets God excited. And I tell you, it must be rare when God looks over the world, it must be rare when he finds people who are actually like that because he gets so excited. I mean, we'll see it in this narrative that, that Jesse has these seven sons, seven sons, and I'm sure they're, they're not bad guys. They were raised to be faithful Hebrew men, and yet Samuel stands in front of each of them, and each time he waits for God to say, that's the one, and God doesn't say it. Take a look at this. It says, Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse had Shammah pass by, But Samuel said, nor has the Lord Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Now again, I don't think these are bad guys. These are not irreligious guys. But they just don't have the quality that God is looking for. So in, in frustration, in confusion, Samuel asked Jesse, wait, are these all the sons you have? I don't get it. And Jesse answers, no, 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 they're still the youngest. He's tending sheep. You know, we couldn't all come in. Someone had to watch the sheep. Someone has to. Samuel said, well, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Come on, on the double, get him here. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance And handsome features. Um, But this is talking about David, who became uh, the the future king. I'm spoiling it for you. Uh, But we often think that David was, like, short and ugly, and that's why God chose him. Here's some consolation for those of you who are beautiful people. God doesn't hate you for being beautiful, okay? Um, It it turns out that David was actually handsome, and he was strong, and and he was was healthy. Um, But that's not what impressed God. What impressed God was something deeper, then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully. The, some other translations say, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. See, David finally comes, and God says, This is the one. What's different about David? His heart. This is a man who is living his life pursuing the heart of God. Here is a man who is deeply devoted to God, a man who loves God deeply. He's found the one. Now, before you um, run ahead of yourselves here, I want to set the record straight right now. (laughs) David doesn't end up being a perfect man, and he doesn't end up even being a perfect king. Later on in David's reign, in his work, in his life, he will do things that, that are so awful, that, that just make huge mistakes, mistakes that are so big that they would not only def- like disqualify me from doing my job, they would disqualify any leader of a secular company from doing his or her job, any public official from doing his or her job. I mean, we're talking about major, major failures of leadership and character, David does those things later on in his life. But here's what's crazy to me. Here's what's crazy to me. In spite of those big failures, when David dies, the title that God gave him at the beginning remains in place. God still says of David, even after all of that, here is a man, here was a man after my own heart. Is that weird to anyone else? I mean, at the beginning, sure, God could say that about David, but after David made all these huge mistakes, how could God say, yep, there's David? He committed adultery, he killed a guy, he did all kinds of things, but man, he's a guy guy after my own heart. How could God say that? Why would God say that? Because it was true. See, this is where we have to break apart this picture that godliness is somehow about perfection. It's not. But, But what is godliness about? It's about the heart. See, David was a man who even though he was flawed, even though he was weak, like all of the rest of us, he was a man who lived his life to his dying day with a deep love, a deep desire, a deep devotion to his God. I mean, when David worshiped, he worshiped in a way that would make most of us, especially those of us who are men, very uncomfortable. I mean, he, he was a guy who, who, who would cry in worship, right? You know some weepers in worship, people who cry in church and you're like, what's wrong with them? Uh, David was one of those people. David was a guy who wrote love songs, not to girls, he wrote love poems, not to girls, but to God. David was a guy who, who one time he danced naked, half naked, in front of his whole capital city because the Ark of the Covenant was coming to dwell in his city. God was coming to be his neighbor, and he was so excited that God was going to live next to him, that, that he was dancing with all of his might, half naked, in front of all of his people in a way that was so undignified that even his wife was like, David, what's wrong with you? See, see, if a modern day David walked into this church and started worshiping the way David worshiped, he, I, I guarantee you one thing, he'd probably be asked to leave. <laughs> now, I don't want you to think that David was, was some kind of, uh, you know, weak man. I mean, he's a powerful guy, powerful warrior. He killed a giant, if you know that part of the story. So, so David wasn't soft. He was a guy who was devoted in spite of all of his failures, in spite of all of his weaknesses, he was deeply devoted to God. He loved God with all of his heart. And so even in his ugly moments, even in those moments where he had committed great sins, when he found out that those sins were not just sins against people, but but they were sins against God's honor, they were sins against his relationship with God, the moment he found out that he had sinned against the God that he loved, he fell down on his knees and he cried out and he asked for forgiveness. Because nothing in the world was worth it to him to damage his relationship with God. Now, isn't that true godliness and I'd ask you who in your life do you know like that I mean as we talk about godliness in this new way who comes to mind for you someone who who when they talk about God they just exude a depth a devotion a passion for Jesus for the love of the father who do you know like that and they may not be perfect, they're probably not perfect, none of us are perfect, and maybe they're even okay with not being perfect, but, but, but when you're with them, you know that there is something so deep and sincere and powerful about their love. I mean, for me, I think about my grandpa, my, uh, my dad's dad, my Papa JT. He was a man who, um, gosh, he struggled with his flesh, he had a lot of weaknesses, and um, he conquered some of those things or at least kept them in check as far as I know later on in life, but he had a temper and he had a mouth and, and yet when he talked about Jesus, there, there was something so powerful about it. He, just, he would tear up and, and you could sense that it was real. When he would play his guitar and sing, you could, you could hear the passion, you could hear the depth, you could hear his heart. Later on in life, he would go to nursing homes and uh, group homes and, and he, would, he would do worship for the residents there not because it was a good thing to do. He just, he just had to tell people about his love for God. It needed an outlet in his life. See, that's who I think of. Who do you think of? When you think about godliness in this way, someone who, who evidences that deep devotion and intense passion for God. And maybe more important than who is that in your life, maybe the question for us is, so how do I become more of that? Right, if godliness is about behavior, we can handle that. Right? We, we can train dogs to behave. We can train monkeys to do things. We can do rewards and punishments and, and we can train your behavior. If godliness is about something deeper, how do we become more godly? If it's about the heart, how do you change the heart? How do you make the heart love? How do you make the heart grow in devotion? How do you do that? I think there's a way and I want to share with you right, right now. Uh, the first thing is you have to acknowledge how unlovable you can be. Now, now don't get me wrong. I know that you sitting out there, that there are plenty of times that you are, you are completely lovable. I mean, you're good-looking people. You're kind people. I, I think you're, you're upright people most of the time. I, I think there are plenty of times in your life where you are lovable. The people in your life, they love you and they love you for good reason because you're completely lovable. But can we also acknowledge that there are other times when... Whew, right, again, if, if we watch the tape, 24-hour surveillance... There are things that, that, that the people, even who love you most, would see and they would go, and they would move away. See, I'm not asking you to dwell on that. I'm not asking, asking you to wallow in that. I'm just asking you to acknowledge that. That you may be a good person most of the time, but, but are there moments when you can be so unlovable and if people saw, if they knew, they would back away? Can you acknowledge that? See, in order to become more godly, you have to And then the next thing that you need to do After you acknowledge that Is you need to accept what God did for you Accept what God did for you That although people might see our moments And they might back away And maybe in your life you've experienced that Literally, someone going Hey, that's too much for me I, I can't be in relationship with you Even though that's the reality of our human experience When God sees it And trust me, he sees it all He sees it even more clearly than you do When he sees your unlovable moments He doesn't back away He presses in not only does he press in, he moves towards you, he runs towards you. He runs towards you with his arms open and he embraces you and he tells you that you are still his, you are still lovable, even though you may do unlovable things, that you still belong to him. You're still his son, you are his daughter. He sent his son into the world to take away the shame, the sin, that, that unlovable title away from you. He took it away and he called you lovable again. You need to accept that God has done that for you. And some of you can't because you're still holding on to this illusion that you're a good person, that you're never unlovable. It's not true. Just let the, let the veil fall off. Acknowledge that you can be unlovable sometimes, really unlovable. And then accept what God's done for you, that he's dealt with that, that, that he hasn't gotten freaked out or stepped away, but he moves in toward you. And he tells you that you're lovable still to him. See, some of you, you're going to have a hard time, hard time accepting this because you've done some stuff in life. And you don't feel like you can let yourself off the hook. You want to hold on to this idea that you are unlovable even to God. You want to punish yourself. You want to beat yourself up for your mistakes and your failures. You want to imagine that you've disqualified yourself from the love of God. Today I'm begging you, I'm begging you. Accept what God has done for you. Jesus didn't die on a cross for nothing. He did it so you could be free. Just just accept it. Except that even though you do unlovable things, you can be unlovable. God has declared you lovable again. See, if you want to grow in godliness, if you want your heart to change, you've got to acknowledge that you can be unlovable. You've got to accept what God did for you, and then you've got to learn why. You've got to learn why God did what he did. See, the what's not enough. And I went to seminary, and there are all of these elaborate theological definitions of, as, as, to, as to what Jesus did I'm asking you to look deeper at the why. Why did God do all of this for us? Why does he press in? Why does he love us still? Why did he send his son into the world? Why? And the answer is so simple that I think we just miss it. The answer is because he loves you. Because he's more devoted to you than you are to him and he doesn't care. Because he wants more for you Than you even want for yourself. And I know some of you have a hard time believing that. You think God's trying to take things away from you, but God wants more for you than you even want for yourself because He's so devoted to you that He won't let you settle. See, why did God do that? Because He loves you, because He's devoted to you first and best in all ways. And see, I'm convinced that that if if you just dwell on these things, if you do these things, if you practice these things, if you immerse yourself in the why, if you let that reality that God is a God who loves you, he's devoted to you, if you let that penetrate your heart and your mind, man, 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 I'm telling you, things will change for you. Something will begin to happen in here and your desire for God will deepen, your devotion will deepen, you will become more godly in a way that counts most. I don't know about you, I'm I'm still on a journey with all of this, but here's what I can say. That someday when I'm dead and gone and people are talking about me and trying to say nice things about me at my funeral, uh, what what I really hope is, is not that people say, oh, Dion was a perfect, upright, blameless, righteous man because guys, I'm not. I'm a screw up. And please don't ever think of me as anything better than that. I'm getting better in some ways, but, but I'm never gonna be good enough to not be a screw up. See, see what I hope, what I wish for myself, my, my dream for my life is that when I'm dead and gone and people are standing up to say nice things about me, they will say, man, here was a God who passionately loved God. He struggled with weakness and, and sin and, and yet he was deeply devoted to God. You could just see it. You could feel it. You knew it. He wasn't perfect, but he was a man after God's own heart. See, I hope today that you can begin to reorient your life away from all of the other pictures of of godliness, of what it means to be a Christ follower, and you can begin to reorient them to, to to this idea of true godliness, of being a person who is so enthralled by the love of God that you can't help but be devoted back to him. See, that's godliness. And and for that, uh, I, I wanna pray for us. Father in heaven, I am overwhelmed at who you are and why you do the things that you do. Father, I, I can't control my judgmental, critical nature for more than 30 seconds, and yet you, you see my whole life plain. And yet you don't run away. You've moved, moved toward me. You've moved toward us, even in our most unlovable moments. and you've embraced us and you've cleansed us and purified us. You've declared us yours. You, you tell us you love us and that we belong to you We're, we're your sons and daughters. And Father, you don't do that for, uh, for ego. You don't do that out of obligation. You do that because you love us, because you're devoted to us. Father, that overwhelms That overwhelms me. And I pray that overwhelms all of us. I pray it overwhelms us in in such a way that our hearts begin to change. And we stop becoming so fixated on behavior and the outward things and we start to become more attentive to what's going on in our hearts and and our hearts begin to desire you more and and, uh, we become more passionate about you and more desirous of, of pleasing you and loving you back. Father, I pray that you would make us godly in that way. In Jesus, amen. Uh, as we close our service, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song, and it's a, it's a song that I love. It's one of my favorite songs right now. Uh, it speaks about the things that we've, we've just uh, spent some time reflecting on. Um, but while we're doing that, we're going to participate also in our um, fifth marked moment, where you actually get a chance to be marked. And um, uh, literally, what we're going to have happen during this, and you just feel free to get up whenever you want, but we're going to have people standing up in the front, and they're going to have horns, animal horns, that are hollowed out, and inside there's oil. It's, uh, it's just olive oil um, with some lavender, I believe. And um, if, if you want to come forward, you can come forward and receive on your hand, just on the back of your hand, the mark of the cross, right? Because just like David was anointed with this horn of oil, today you can be anointed. Um, and, and for you, maybe this for you is just your declaration of saying, God, I want more of you. I, I, I want you to change my heart. I, I want you to impact me with uh, how much you love me. And I want that to change me. I want that to redefine me. But I'll tell you what this is for God. This this for God is only a validation of what's already true, that you are his son, you are his daughter. He loves you. He is devoted to you. His spirit already is dwelling on you. This is an affirmation that all of that is true. In In spite of your struggle, in spite of your weakness, you're still his. So um, when this song is going, you can get up at any time. We're not going to necessarily be orderly about this. Don't feel bad about that. When you're ready to come, come. If you don't want to come, if you don't want to get oil on your hand, don't do it. If you're watching online, you obviously can't get oil here. Go to the kitchen. Find some olive oil. Find some motor oil. Whatever you want to do, you know, just anoint each other with the sign of the cross as a reminder that God's claim on you doesn't change with how you behave. It is an everlasting claim, and, and that is truly a transforming truth. Okay, so whenever you're ready, come forward as we sing.